not usually obvious, um, or not often obvious at first, actually how difficult a day of meditation can be at times. That the simplicity of the form and the technique and even the offering, just to be present moment by moment, belies the difficulty of actually being present and awake moment by moment. <coughs> and um, I just want to remind you of a few things as I begin the talk. One is to remember um, what I said last night about don't make your final assessment until the retreat is over maybe even a few days after the retreat is over, to see the impact of this kind of sustained time, intention, uh, practice, to see the impact of it on the heart and the mind. And I'll again repeat the quote that I began with last night, to study the Buddha way, is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self or let go of the self, relax the sense of self. And to forget the self is to be awakened or intimate with all things. And the study of the self calls for a great kindness, a great compassion. That's why compassion is so strongly emphasized in Buddhist practice because it takes a kindness and compassion to be with this human experience in this very bare way, moment by moment by moment by moment. And so tonight, uh, hopefully in the service of uh, offering some reflections for your consideration, I would like to talk about these three themes that we mentioned, that I mentioned last night, of being open or openness, acceptance, and intimacy in practice. Sometimes I find my best Dharma material in the San Francisco newspapers, which may be equivalent with some of the tabloids in Britain, I'm not sure. But this is from the sports section, which is probably the section I read the most. And what it is, it's a list of actual uh, questions and comments that the Forest Service in America received from people after their wilderness experience. This one says, they get a note that says, the trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid building trails that go uphill. (laughs) Good idea, huh? Too many bugs and leeches and spiders and spider webs. Please spray the wilderness to rid the area of these pests. You know how it is. Haven't you had a moment today where you felt like you could just spray your mind and get rid of all the pests and all the things that stick and crawl and creep? You know, it's a it's a very it's a very natural human um, tendency to think that the way to freedom is to get rid of something, and the Dharma actually turns that around. It says, no, the way to freedom is right in the middle of things. It's not having to get rid of things. 
but that we can find our freedom here and now. But most of the people who write into the sports section or who write to the fourth uh, service aren't thinking about that exactly. So the forest service received something that said, please pave the trail so they can be plowed of snow in the winter. I like this one. We need more signs to keep the area pristine. <laughs> here's, here's a good one. The places where trails do not exist are not well marked. <laughs> And of course, in America, a McDonald's would be nice at Trailhead. <laughs> These are a little bit examples of non-acceptance, of not being open, of actually not being intimate with the experience of the wilderness, but of wanting to impose a different experience, an experience of having a McDonald's, of having it the way we want, rather than the way it is. So I'd like to talk about openness, acceptance, intimacy, and how they connect, where there might be a through line between the three of them. One way I think about this is that opening is the precursor to accepting. That we need to be open to whatever it is before we can actually accept it. And acceptance itself is the precursor to intimacy, to coming closer, to being able to see beyond our ideas, our beliefs, our imaginings, to move into the reality itself, the reality of now, and that intimacy with the breath and the body and the heart and the mind. Even to come here <clears throat> for this retreat, you had to be open to the retreat, open, at least open to the idea that there was something here of value that you might learn from, that might support your uh, development, your maturity, your awakening. <clears throat> so I like, to, I like to see what words actually mean. I often look up the words that I use. And when I looked up open, I found it had a lot of definitions that I thought were quite applicable to our practice, to what it is to sit here now. The first definition of open means to unclose so as to make passage possible. There needs to be some level of openness just to let the teachings in, to let the Dharma in, to see if it speaks to you if it touches your heart and frees your mind. To unlock, uh, a second definition means to unlock, to remove the covering. And you may notice that our habitual daily life tends to bring a kind of covering over the heart and mind and even the sensitivity of body that there's a way that uh, our daily life leads to a closing down. Often, given the vicissitudes of human life, many of us tend to have a kind of defensive, hardened stand in response to um, the various difficulties of life. Our hearts and our bodies get locked up a bit. 
um, this kind of protective covering or shell that comes. <clears throat> and in meditation practice, one of the things that begins to happen is a kind of opening, a kind of cracking of the shell or a rending of the veil, and we start to see beyond the habitual, beyond our usual stance. Maybe you noticed it during the sunset. Maybe you, you had a taste of that for a few moments as the sun was setting, and the eyes might have been a little fresher, a little more sensitive to the beauty and glory of just being here. <clears throat> Opening uh, also meant to make accessible. And what becomes accessible is our self. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. It becomes accessible here in the uh, beautiful laboratory of Dharma, of practice. We start to see, oh, we might not be who we think we are. We might not be what we've been taking ourselves to be for a lifetime. To be open means to make known. To make known. And this is so much of our practice, is simply to make known what's actually happening. And so we do it very systematically with breath and body, with sensations and feelings, with moods and emotions, with the whole process of thinking, cognizing, remembering, imagining. Over and over we begin to make things known and then we begin to, at some point, recognize what's knowing all of this, all of this display that appears and sustains for a few moments and then disappears. Now, the dictionary had a very interesting definition, a few that I didn't expect. One was, to be open means to burst and discharge as old as in an old, like an old wound. And I thought that was very interesting, um, definition of open, and quite applicable. Sometimes a part of a retreat or a whole retreat can be um, a healing that happens, that the way our um, suffering has been dealt with at some point in our life might not have been so skillful, that it gets repressed or denied or covered over. or um, And, and it, it's not finished in some way. It needs to be exposed to the light of awareness, the light of kindness, to actually heal. And it's not something I was so um, interested in or drawn to when I first came to practice. And, and But over the years I've seen this come as just a natural part of practice. At different times that there'll be a healing, a, a, a grief will be healed, or a hurt, or, or the whole sense of fear that the self is built on will come to rest at some point. Again, another definition that I didn't expect was that open means to develop or to become receptive as a child's mind. And that's a beautiful understanding of what can happen in intensive practice. That as we stay here, 
with all the ups and downs of a day like today and keep going and we keep staying, there's a kind of purification process that happens. And I personally don't use that word so much because people have a lot of baggage with that word. But um, one of the definitions of this practice and one of the great commentaries on on, uh, Vipassana practice is called the path of purification. And the purification is not because we're um, evil or bad or anything like that. It's because of our condition. Our conditioning covers the purity of who we are. And this kind of practice slowly, methodically, um, very simply begins to reveal that natural purity, the natural um, radiance of heart and mind. That's our nature. And so we do. We begin to develop this both receptivity and almost like a child's mind where you can walk through the garden and you just see the beauty of things or the mystery of things as you walk in the old graveyard and then go over the fence and there's a cow. Who could have thought of a cow? I mean, what an amazing being. Big cows with their shiny noses. I love those noses. <laughs> now, this receptivity is also very important when we hear the other last definition for open. And that definition, uh, when we are open, we are ready and free for engagement. Ready and free for engagement. So this begins to point us at the activity of meditation. um, That receptivity is not passivity. And there's often a confusion here. And it comes with being open and accepting. um, Because we encourage it so much, being with the way things are. Sometimes people... um, uh, get the view or opinion or idea, then it means we, you have to be passive and just accept everything and that's it. You never act. It's only one half of our practice is this receptivity. This openness, this acceptance allows us to begin to see the way things are, be with the way things are, and then respond. <clears throat> So, so the openness and acceptance allow us to be ready and free to engage. And you can look at any of the great masters, the, so many of the great masters. The Dalai Lama, of course, is a great example, who pr- still practices a number of hours every day. I can't remember if it's four or six hours a day. And then he engages fully in the world. And he engages with a wise mind and a kind heart over and over again in the face of some of the worst suffering that we've seen in the last 50 years, 100 years. The decimation of Tibet, his people, his country. And he responds over and over again with wisdom and kindness. And so it's not, he's not passive. Not at all. But he's definitely willing to see the way things are again and again and again. I was very moved reading a book not so long ago called Sorrow Mountain 
about a Tibetan nun who'd been in prison for 20-some years, um, tortured by the Chinese, not allowed to pray. And the whole time she was um, holding the idea and the intention that someday she would meet the Dalai Lama. And then she was let out, and she was still a little bit of a rebel, and so she was going to be locked up again. She was in Lhasa, and she knew she had to leave, and so she left and escaped over the highest mountains of the world, came to Dharamsala. And, and the Dalai Lama meets all the, of his people who escaped from Tibet. He meets them personally. And she came and came into the room and wanted to bow. He wouldn't even let her bow. He said, get up, held her hand. And he said, tell me everything. And I'm moved saying it, because I'm always moved when I think about him, hearing story after story of what's happened, facing it directly, not turning away, and still meeting it with kindness and wisdom. So as we begin to open to our experience, moment by moment by moment, we open on two levels. There is this universal level of the direct experience. We open to the universal forms, the sights, the sounds, the tastes, the touch, the thoughts, the feelings that come naturally to human beings, the various sense doors. We also open on a second level. We open to our personal reaction to each of those mind moments, to each of those experiences that arise moment by moment by moment. That if there are 40-some people here, that you'll have 40 different responses to the same phenomena. feel like, oh, it's no big deal either way of the sound. And you can have any of those experiences at a different time this bell is rung. If you hear it, if you hear this when you've been sitting and restless and agitated, it sounds great. <laughs> when you hear this disliking, the neither liking nor like disliking response. Now as I talk about being open, being accepting of things, often people feel like, oh, then I have to be open, I have to be accepting of things. 
One of the great paradoxes of Vipassana practice and of this kind of meditation is that to be open or to be accepting means to be open to the times when we're not open or to accept the moments when we're not accepting. There's always higher ground that way. We're not locked into being one way, but to actually being the way we are and seeing that we can be open to that, whether it's good or bad, right or wrong, whether it looks like a great meditator or a horrible meditator, we can be open to the truth of the way things are moment by moment. So that we have the capacity to be open to being closed, being covered, to being locked, whatever it might be. Thomas Merton said, true love and prayer are learned in the hour when love becomes impossible and the heart is turned to stone. True love and prayer is learned in the hour when love becomes impossible and the heart has turned to stone. There's a beautiful story in the traditional Buddhist text in the suttas, the teaching stories of the Buddha, about this kind of openness. And the story is very poignant because it's between, the dialogue is mostly between the Buddha and his son, who he left as a baby. The Buddha left his family, went off to seek enlightenment, and then returns later. And his family, both his um, son and um, his wife or his really his um, son's stepmother who raised his son, come back into the Sangha and come into the Sangha and come into a different relationship with the Buddha, come into spiritual relationships now. It's a very interesting archetypal uh, transformation that happens in their relationship. And Oh, the, the son gets admonished by the Buddha for being kind of vain. Actually, the son is walking behind the Buddha, Rahula is his name, and they're going for alms round to go get their food. And Rahula is looking at the Buddha and sees how beautiful he is. He's radiant, and he's, he's always described as quite beautiful. And Rahula is thinking, that's my dad. You know, I'm, I'm going to look like him, you know. And the Buddha, who's omniscient, turns around and says uh, something to the effect of, uh, you know, you should do more meditation, basically, and admonishes him. And, and Rahula listens. He says, oh, the Buddha's admonished me. I'm not going to go for alms. I'm, I'm going to go meditate. And um, I can't remember exactly how it goes. I think it goes something like this. As he sits down, one of the senior disciples, Sariputta, as he goes by, says, be mindful of breathing. And then he goes off on his own ground. And later, Rahula asks, how do I do that? How do I really practice that way? And the Buddha encourages him to, and I'm quoting now from the sutta, Develop a mind that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Okay? Now you've all been sitting here today, you know, you've had all kinds of experience. Have you noticed the arisen agreeable contacts and the arisen disagreeable contacts. 
that have touched your heart and mind. So a pleasant moment is an arisen agreeable contact. When you like the bell, or when you had a sense of the breath that was very pure and it was kind of delicious, or maybe a sense of peacefulness, um, or maybe a sense of the beauty of the day at some point, or the garden. Maybe some of you had some arisen disagreeable contacts, restlessness, sleepiness, irritation, desire, aversion, chattering, mind, you couldn't stop it. These are disagreeable contacts. And the Buddha says, develop a mind like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. And then he goes on to, to say more. He says, just as people throw clean things and dirty things, excrement, urine, spittle, pus, and blood on the earth, and the earth is not horrified, not humiliated and disgusted because of that, so too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. And he's suggesting, and this is one of the fruits of, of this kind of practice, that there is this kind of equanimity that can arise with all everything that comes, whether we like it or we don't, whether it's agreeable or disagreeable, that we can let everything come and go in this space of wisdom and kindness. And then the Buddha continues the metaphor because he's using the metaphor of the elements. The, mostly they use four elements, but this time the Buddha's using the five elements. He says, develop meditation like water where everything is received. Develop meditation like fire where everything is consumed. Develop meditation like air, which touches on all things, regardless of its form. He's giving you a very big mind that allows everything to come and go. And then he says, develop meditation like space, which embraces everything, which puts all in context. This kind of teaching has the very strong flavor of openness and acceptance. Developing a mind that embraces everything. One of the when you look up the root of embrace of acceptance, often they have embrace in there. This is a spacious openness, a contemplative openness. Nothing is excluded. Not, no thing is separated out from the matrix of the moment and made bad or wrong or not in any way. See what it's like to be spacious and open in this way with your experience right now. Whatever your experience is, very possible you're tired when your body's achy. Let your mind be like the earth, like water, like fire, like air, like space. The Buddha also had a very succinct uh, description of mindfulness practice. 
He said, because we hold ourselves dear, we maintain careful self-regard both day and night. Because we hold ourselves dear, because we value this human life, this consciousness that has the possibility of awakening, we, we maintain careful self-regard. It's a euphemism for mindfulness. Careful self-regard. Caring mindfulness, both day and night. And this sense of continuity that we're developing here as we practice, moment by moment. This is not a dry or cold mindfulness. The kindness, the compassion that is inseparable is woven into the mindfulness. We hold ourselves dear and we maintain careful self-regard. Learning to hold ourselves and ultimately all beings dear. So openness matures into acceptance with kindness and compassion. So it's not just open or a blank openness, but with acceptance, it's a warm openness. It's, it's kindness and openness. And as I said, I think I said it already, it's needed for this practice. It's quite radical to just sit down and examine the human experience. It's very radical. One of my friends actually just wrote a book called Radical Acceptance, because it is. It's radical to sit here and learn that we can accept this whole experience. As Changpa Rinpoche used to say, he used to say, uh, everything is workable. And we don't, I didn't grow up believing that at all. But I believe it now. I know that that's true. Everything is workable. Carl Jung, the analyst, said, the most terrifying thing is to accept oneself completely. The most terrifying thing is to accept oneself completely. And that's all we ask of you. And it's an interesting orientation to begin to accept ourselves completely. Because we're not orienting them towards comfort, towards security, towards image, towards idea. We're orienting towards the truth. We orient towards the Dharma, the way things are. And at least when I entered consciously spiritual life, that's not what I thought was the teaching. You know, I thought I was going to get a better and bigger and shinier and more enlightened self, basically. And it took me a while to accept the fact that the road to awakening went right here. Didn't go, didn't, you know, I could go to India or I could go wherever, to the highest mountain in the world, but the road to awakening goes right here. And really, is, is, um, there's no way past this experience of studying the self, of paying attention to this human being with all the foibles of being a human being, with all the conditioning, to be able to find the awakening I seek and thought right here. 
Think about it. What would it take to accept yourself fully? Just as you are. I mean, it's so radical. (laughs) There would not be much more to do than that. Maybe you could reflect for a little bit about what is it that you don't accept? Before you do, I'll tell you a few things that I reflected on. Then you can reflect for yourself. Or even while I'm talking, you can reflect. When I began to reflect on this, I was thinking about some of the things I found hardest to accept about myself. And one thing had to do, some of it had to do with meditation. And um, one thing I discovered that I saw very clearly, I kind of knew this, but when I really did this reflection, it was like, oh yeah, that's really hard. I'm a competitive meditator. I confess. (laughs) And I I saw it very clearly in a long retreat I was doing, and a good friend was on the long retreat. And I realized I was competing with him. You know, I'm this Vipassana retreat. How do you do that? I'm walking slower than him. <laughs> I was eating way slower than him. <laughs> he, he couldn't keep up with me at all at the time. <laughs> he would be gone, gone a good 15 minutes before I was done. And, uh, and it was very interesting because I was actually having a lovely retreat, but there was a kind of dukkha in the competing with him. It, it didn't actually feel good. I didn't like it, and I, and I couldn't stop it, really. I couldn't stop it. I, I'm competitive. So I went into my teacher, and I was telling him about this, and I was a little ashamed of this. And, you know, I'd been practicing for many, many years, and so I had some judgment about it. And he kind of played with me a little. He likes to use, he likes to talk, use dialects, so he kind of went into Indian guru dialect. He said, oh yes, I see you're a very, very competitive young man. He said, well, I hope you've been looking because then you would see that I am competitive also. And he made me laugh. He poked the judgment about it. And the judgment kind of just puffed. And I kind of laughed and teared a little because I really w- was ashamed of being competitive. And he, he really poked that totally. And then he kind of slipped in the Dharma teaching. He said, and you must accept it fully. And I'm like, I'm a pretty good yogi. And when a teacher tells me to do something, I do it. So it's like, okay, let's go for it now. Now I was really competitive. (laughs) Now I I didn't have any more shame about it. (laughs) And what was very interesting to see was very quickly the competitive thing with my friend actually went away and a whole deeper level came of God knows what. Um, Maybe the worst of human beings. The competition was just like the surface. And all this uh, energy and uh, uh, I'm not even going to tell you in detail, but I kept having this um, kind of poem line come that I've got a wilderness in me. And the, the poem goes, in some ways, you know, I've got a lion in me and a tiger in me and a hyena and all this stuff. And I could feel it, only I felt it in terms of other human beings. 
and um, and I let it come because I'd had permission. My teacher said, you know, let it rip. I let it rip. And it came for a number of days until it was gone. And then what was left was this very pure energy. It was just pure energy. All the content, all the story, all the imagining, and all the a kind of hatred that was there, and the viciousness that came, it just went away. And it was just this energy. And it was really beautiful, but it really actually t- took a little while uh, on the retreat. There's a number of other things that I found difficult. Being needy doesn't go over big in America. I don't know how it plays here, but being needy is not a quality that that gets a lot of uh, strokes. So that's something. Or um, one thing I found hard to accept as a meditator is being unconcentrated. How many people have ever had that experience of having a hard time accepting? You're just not concentrated now. It's actually not a horrible thing. You're just not concentrated. Concentration fluctuates. It's its nature, actually. It won't stay. You can stabilize it for a while. You can develop it, deepen it, and then stop for a while, and it fluctuates again. One other piece that I saw that I want to mention, because it's not always negative things that are hard to accept. Sometimes, for some of us, it's positive things that are hard to accept. Maybe the, the vastness of our love is hard to accept. Or the tenderness of heart that is here at times may be hard to accept. I know for myself, growing up as a man in America, um, being sweet was very hard to accept. And people would see this a certain quality of sweetness in me, and I didn't want them to see it. And so I became very streetwise. I, you know, I'm very good on the streets of New York, etc., etc. But it was all a cover, or a certain amount was a cover for this quality that I found hard to accept in myself, that only um, as, through practice, really, did I begin to value and enjoy and not have to feel like, oh, I shouldn't be sweet because it wasn't, quote, manly. So consider for yourself what qualities of heart and mind are hard for you to accept. Is it your fear or your passion? Is it your insecurity? Or maybe it's your confidence. Why is it unacceptable? What do you believe would happen if you accepted it? Because there's usually a whole lot of conditioning around this stuff. And so it can be helpful to see the views and opinions in order to help it release. You know, what do you think people will do if they see that you're sweet? Or that you're angry sometimes? This is from the Shinshin Ming. The Shinshin Ming is a beautiful Mahayana text from the Zen tradition 
I think it's the third Zen patriarch. And it's translated, Shinshin Ming is translated as verses from the faith mind, or the mind of absolute trust. The mind of absolute trust. It's a beautiful text, just to read that text. It's gorgeous. And they say, if you wish to move in the one way, do not dislike even the world of senses and ideas. Indeed, to accept them fully is identical with true enlightenment. If you wish to move in the one way, do not dislike even the world of the senses and ideas. Indeed, to accept them fully is identical with true enlightenment. The mind of absolute trust. This kind of perception, this movement of opening and beginning to accept our experience moment by moment by moment moves us to a kind of understanding that reality is not a mistake, that we're not a mistake, that this is the realm of awakening, and that all that is presented is for the possibility of our awakening, for our freedom. I don't have it here, but I've just been reading an interview with a fellow named uh, Hurricane, Reuben Hurricane Carter, who was a, a boxer, a fighter in uh, probably the 60s or 70s, and then was um, arrested and jailed for, I think, 20-some years, falsely, and on death row, almost died, almost was executed, finally was released. And he talks now, he's like a Buddha. He said, going to prison, and he, you know, he, he refused, when he was in prison, he refused. He was so strong and, and knew he was innocent. He refused to wear the prison clothes. He refused to eat the prison food. And he spent half of his time in solitary confinement in the dark because he was rebellious. He wouldn't go along with the system. And now he says, it was the best thing that ever happened to him because it awakened him, and it awakened his kindness and care. It's, it's really magnificent to read uh, him, him talk about it. And he said it took a while, and that he finally had to face that he was the problem, ultimately, not something else. And that he, he found his freedom, and then he was freed after all, you know, literally. Now, when we talk about this kind of acceptance, I think it's important to look at how we're utilizing the meditative practice. Because, at least for myself, and I've seen this in yogis from time to time, that there'll be a way we'll try to use meditation to avoid our experience rather than open to our experience. Now, we'd rather get concentrated and deny what's here instead of get concentrated and open to what's here. Sometimes I think of this as trying to vipassanize our experience, a kind of spiritual euthanasia. And it, there is some benefit to maybe getting concentrated and avoiding things for a while. But sooner or later, we have to come back to this acceptance 
of the way things are, of this human condition, to see that um, to accept it fully is identical with true enlightenment. And remember, we're not being open or accepting just to be nice or good or because they're good ideas. That there is a goal, the goal of understanding, of awakening, of freedom. And acceptance is a dharma door, it's a dharma gate. It's one of the vehicles for awakening, this kind of acceptance. This is from one of my teachers, Hamid Ali. He said, we need to let go, rest, just be, to accept what is, not just mentally, but with the whole of our being, intimately, I would say. Acceptance of my experience of myself means being here now without manipulation. The more that I accept, the more I am in the present. When I'm in the future or wanting to achieve, even wanting acceptance, the less I am accepting myself. It's like taking a risk, like jumping off a cliff acceptance. I accept more the more I trust in reality. It's a quantum leap, for there are no securities, no guarantees. When this state of abandon is realized, I find that I'm alive as if for the first time. It is the first time. I'm alive, awake, Bodhi, as the Buddhists say. It happens whenever I accept myself, let go of preconceptions, and just be. The more I accept, the more I die, and the more alive I am. Total acceptance with the entirety of my being is complete death, and the complete death of the manipulative ego is full rebirth, awakening. So being open, beginning to compassionately accept the fullness of life with our whole being, embracing life in this way, begins to lead to an intimacy with all things. As we open, as we accept a moment, the breath, the body, the heart, the mind, one of the, when I think of the effort, what, what is the right effort of intimacy? The right effort of intimacy is curiosity. And I'm not talking so much about an intellectual curiosity, but a kinesthetic, self-sense curiosity. What does a breath actually feel like? What does a body actually feel like in the living moment, in the living reality? in the reality of now. What, what are these feelings that grab us and swirl us and twirl us and we love and we hate? Three-dimensional. Have you seen it yet? Have you seen the trance begin to lift or the cover uh, open or the veils part in your practice, either today or any time in your practice? One moment of that and you know it. You know Oh, this is something, this is part of our birthright. This is part of who we are in essence. And it creates a tremendous confidence in practice. 
And the mind of absolute trust is what comes out of those moments where we begin to see clearly who and what we are. There's a quote I have here. It's from a, actually a tantric teacher in India where she got the question that said, I've had trouble letting go. And so much of our practice of opening and accepting things is also letting things come and letting things go. Being with things as they are means not grabbing, not pushing away, not holding on, not resisting. Excuse me, Debbie says, the question comes, I've had trouble letting go. That's normal. Everybody wants to let go. But how do you let go if you don't hold things or embrace things, if you don't touch things in full awareness, full consciousness, with the whole of your being, with a totally open heart? The first thing is having the experience of touch of profound contact with things, with the universe, with your breath, with your body, with your heart. Everything begins there, touching the universe deeply. If you let go before touching deeply, that can bring on a kind of turmoil. Many beginning yogis make this mistake. They let go before embracing, before touching the world. They do it mechanistically. I'm adding this now. The heart is never open, she says. They enter into a sterile void and remain imprisoned. When you touch deeply, you no longer need to let go. That occurs naturally. This is the great teaching of intimacy as we move into the, as we move closer and closer to our experience, we disappear. There's not this separation. There's just the moment and the knowing of it, and the intimacy of it, the aliveness of it, the beauty, the mystery, the transience, the impermanence of it. It's all right here. That's all that's happening every moment anyway. It's all appearing and vanishing. And it's beautiful, and it's tragic. It's easy, and it's difficult. As we move closer and closer, we don't need to let go. We can't hold on to anything. That's the way things are. There's nothing we can hold on to. Have you found anything you can hold on to, really, in this life? Anybody? So when Dogen says to study the Buddha way is to study the self, to study the self is to forget the self. If we come closer and closer to this experience, we lose that separation. And we're just here. But it's not even that we're here. We just are, we could say. We are the same arising and passing as all things. We are transient. We are ephemeral transparent, selfless, ultimately. 
So to forgive the self is to be awakened or intimate with all things. And if you take just a moment and reflect with me about even the conventional use of the word intimate or intimacy, I think it, I think it can be very helpful. So if I think about a conventional, usually we talk about intimate when we've met somebody and we're getting to know them and we're moving closer and closer and closer to them. And we really like it. We usually like intimacy pretty big these days. There's a lot of books on intimacy. Almost as many books on intimacy as Buddhism these days. <laughs> but not quite. <laughs> But, but if we look, part of what we might love about intimacy may be qualities that we find through Dharma also, which is when we're intimate with somebody, like we've met somebody and we like them, we don't take anything for granted when we're with them. We're like, really, we're kind of alive and open. We really, you know, what's going on? Who is this person? There's a lot of curiosity and interest very high interest, uh, which is one of the factors of enlightenment. Um, so we don't take things for granted. We're very present when we're with them. It's a kind of heightened aliveness. You don't even have to concentrate or sit and follow your breath. It's like, wow, all of a sudden you're really there. <laughs> and we mostly we project it on the other person. But I'm suggesting that these, these qualities of heart and mind that we love as well as the other person. We're also very, usually very open to them. There's a sense of openness that we love, that our usual shell or our barriers or the defensive attitude we have has come down, has started to fade away. We love the openness. Often you'll notice, especially in the kind of first blush of a relationship, we're very accepting of people. We can see that they're not perfect, but it doesn't matter. It's only six months later that it matters. (laughs) But at first, in that real intimacy, that aliveness, that freshness, you see that they're not perfect, but it's not a big deal. There's also a kind of vulnerability. We're transparent ourselves in some way. And we're often in touch with the preciousness and the precariousness, the, uh, the impermanence of human life when we begin relationships like that. We can begin to taste that ineffable quality of impermanence. One of my friends once wrote about the eros of shared impermanence. The eros of shared impermanence. And really we share that eros here. Eros, in a very big sense, is a kind of aliveness. It's not just, not just narrow to sexuality. But it's the aliveness of here. We're here together. You can see it in somebody's eyes. When you, you look in somebody's eyes, that amazing spark of life that's here for a while, that sustains for a while, and then goes. A couple last thoughts, reflections about intimacy. I'm friends with Kitty Sarah and Tanisara, who some of you may know, who, who were monastics in Asia and here in England with Ajahn Sumedho, and um, who come and teach at Gaia House. And um, 
and at uh, Amaravati. And uh, when I first met them, they'd been out of the monastery about three years, and Kitty Sarah had been a monk for 15 years, and Tanisra had been a nun for 12 years, and and they told me that they they um, fell in love without ever having touched and barely even talked. And they fell in love in the monastery, and they left. And they got married. They said they had arranged an arranged marriage, but they don't know who arranged it. <laughs> but they had a deep trust in their experience, and they went with it, and they've been together ever since. And then three years after, when I first met them, I said to Kitty Sarah, I said, because um, I'm very interested in householder practice and relationship as practice, I said, how is it for you? How is it to be in relationship after being... Uh, you know, solitary, a monastic for so long. And he said, in his kind of southern drawl, he said, oh, it's not so bad. It's like, he actually said, it's really easy. It's like having two people under one robe. And, and what he meant by that was the mindfulness that he developed as a monastic, he now extended to his partner. And that is also the possibility for what we're doing here today. And it's not just for our own self that we're learning how to be with things as they are, but that this capacity of heart begins with us but doesn't end with us. That we start to include maybe our partners or our children or our co-workers or our friends. Ultimately, the whole world we bring into our robe, or as my great friend Rio Khan said, he said, oh, that my priest's robe was wide enough to embrace all the suffering people in this floating world. Please reflect for yourself on these qualities, openness, acceptance, intimacy. Notice what it's like to practice opening to what's here, accepting it, and then moving closer to it. See how close you can get. See what happens when you don't even know whether you're close or not anymore. Let's Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.